0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be continuing where I left off last episode with the story of the Pacific Heights dog mauling case. If you haven't heard part one, I urge you to do that first to get the backstory of how this tragedy came to be. Last time, I told you the details regarding Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller, and how they came to own two Presa Canarios, a rare and powerful breed of dog, popular with drug cartels, gangsters, and others, due to their strength, size, and ability to take down an enemy. Noel and Noller, in collaboration with a Pelican Bay inmate, a violent criminal named James Cornfed Schneider, planned to breed and raise these dogs for nefarious purposes, according to gang investigators. In the meantime, two of the dogs, a male named Bane and a female named Hera, were living in Noel and Noller's 6th floor Pacific Heights apartment and causing concern among the residents. Several incidents of aggression by the dogs towards neighbors and their pets had already occurred, and it would all come to a shocking and tragic ending on January 26, 2001. Join me as I pick up the story there. This is Chapter 2 of Wild Things, The Pacific Heights Dog Mauling Case, Part 2. On January 26, 2001, Diane Whipple called her partner, Sharon Smith, around noon at her office. She told her she was coming home early and planned to do some grocery shopping, make dinner, and asked if she wanted to go catch a movie. Sharon agreed, and Diane asked her to come home early, if possible. About 4 p.m., Esther Berkmeyer, who lived directly across the hall from Diane and Sharon, heard dogs barking in the hallway. She'd had her own encounters with the dogs. A couple of months earlier, she'd encountered Hera, unattended in the sixth-floor hallway. Hera came at her fast, and Berkmeyer froze. Hera sniffed her and then walked away when Nola appeared outside her apartment door. She didn't call to the dog, but simply continued locking her door. Berkmeyer said she'd sometimes hear one or both dogs running down the hallway. She didn't know if they were leashed or not, but she'd wait until all was quiet again before she'd leave her apartment to make a beeline for the elevator. The barking came closer to Berkmeyer's end of the hallway, and she didn't dare open her door. Instead, she looked through her peephole. She saw a body lying face down on the floor, just over the threshold of apartment 606, Diane Whipple's apartment. The door was open, and her body was lying partially inside and partially outside. There was a dark object that Berkmeyer thought she made out to be a dog on top of Whipple's body. It wasn't moving. She did not observe anyone else in the hallway or hear any voices. The barking continued. She called 911. While talking to the operator, she heard Marjorie Noller's voice, She was yelling, no, 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 and get off. She said it was at least a couple of minutes after hearing the dogs bark that she heard Noller's voice. The 911 operator asked her if she was calling about an emergency. She said she didn't know. She had heard dogs barking and someone in the hallway, but couldn't tell her if anyone was injured or needed help. The operator told her to call her local police number if it wasn't an emergency. She hung up. Then Berkmeyer heard and felt banging against her own door. Something was hitting it with great force, so much so that she was afraid it would be broken down. She waited until it stopped, and then looked through the peephole again. Groceries were strewn all across the hallway, but Diane Whipple could no longer be seen. The loud banging, barking, and yelling continued from somewhere down the hall. She called 911 again and told an operator this time That she was sure someone was being attacked. She told them she could hear her neighbor Marjorie Noller's voice yelling, get off, get off. Noller, she explained, owned two very large scary dogs. The dispatcher told her units were on their way. At approximately 4.12 p.m., two officers arrived on the scene. They didn't wait for animal care and control to arrive since they had reports of a possible injured victim. One officer took the elevator while the other took the stairs. Officer Laws, upon reaching the sixth floor, saw a dog run past and warned her partner to look out. Officer Forrestal emerged from the elevator to a horrible sight. Diane Whipple was lying face down in the hallway. She was naked, and there were wounds all over her body. Blood was pulled beneath her head, and a large gash in her neck was bleeding profusely. She was attempting to crawl towards the apartment with the open door. One officer told her to lie still. Both officers stood over her body with their guns drawn while waiting for the assistance they'd radioed for, a SWAT team to secure the building, and an ambulance. There was no one else in the hallway, and the dogs were nowhere to be seen. The officers observed that a set of keys were still sticking into the door. A purse was on the ground, and a couple of bags of groceries were strewn around the hall remnants of shredded clothing was also strewn about. There was blood smeared literally up and down the hallway, on the floors, the walls, and the doors. It looked like a horror movie. Just two minutes later, the SWAT team arrived, and one of the team members, a trained EMT, administered first aid to Diane Whipple. He attempted to place his fingers on the wound on her neck to slow the bleeding, but the wound was so severe that he was unable to do so. Diane was still alive, but her breathing and pulse continued to slow alarmingly. Paramedics administered CPR, and she was quickly transported to San Francisco General Hospital. It wasn't until after the SWAT team arrived that Marjorie Noller emerged from apartment 604. The officers asked her where the dogs were. She said they were locked in her apartment. Noller was covered in blood. There was so much of it It dampened her hair and covered her head to foot. She began telling the officers what had happened. She said she'd just returned from walking her dogs and had opened her apartment door to bring the dogs inside. Her male dog must have seen the woman at the end of the hall and turned and ran at her. She said that the female dog was tugging at the woman's pants while the male dog went for her throat. They told her to stay where she was, that she needed to be checked out for injuries She hadn't said she'd been injured, but the officer couldn't tell with all the blood on her body. They also needed to interview her. She wanted to go back into her apartment, but the officer was afraid that if she opened her door, the dogs would rush out and continue the attack. She called to another officer, who led the woman away from the scene and had her sit on the floor. Animal care and control arrived to secure the dogs. They were directed to Marjorie Knoller, who told them they were locked away in the apartment. She'd placed one in the bathroom and one in the bedroom. They asked her if the dogs had ever bitten anyone before. She said no. They asked her if they'd ever been aggressive before. Not towards humans, she said. The animal control officers entered the apartment with catch poles to retrieve the dogs. They found Bane in the bathroom. He was covered in blood. His fur was saturated with it. His teeth were colored red with blood. He was pacing back and forth in the small room. He had defecated all over the floor. They shot him with three tranquilizer darts, but they malfunctioned and had no effect. Two officers carefully placed the rings of the two come-along poles from behind and were able to lead him from the apartment without incident. Hera was found in the bedroom and was barking and snarling and crashing against the door when they entered the apartment. She had blood on her chest, she backed away growling, and they used the poles to remove her from the building also. An animal control officer spoke with Marjorie Noller and asked her who the dog's owners were. She said they were hers. She was asked to sign a form allowing ACC to take custody of the dogs to have them euthanized. She agreed to turn over Bane to them, saying she did not want to see him again. However, she refused to sign a release for Hera and continued to insist that Hera, quote, had only tugged on her pants. Robert Noel arrived while his wife was being checked for injuries. She had a one-inch cut to her right thumb and another small cut to her right index finger. There was a bruise forming above her right eye. There were no injuries to her legs or torso. She didn't complain of any other injuries or appear to be in shock. She did not ask about Diane Whipple. Diane Whipple had lost over half her blood supply and arrived at the hospital in full cardiac arrest. She was rushed into emergency surgery. Sharon Smith had left work a little early at Diane's request, leaving her office at Charles Schwab at about 4.45 p.m. It took her about 45 minutes to get home. When she arrived, her block was surrounded by police cars, fire trucks, and media vans. The building manager met her outside and told her that her partner had been attacked by dogs on the sixth floor and was at the hospital. Sharon's heart stopped. Diane had been terrified of those dogs, and she couldn't imagine what she was going through. She rushed to the hospital. Diane was in surgery for two hours. Surgeons worked to repair the veins and arteries in her neck. These were the most serious of her injuries. She had multiple injuries, over 70 wounds in total, to almost every part of her body, both legs, upper torso, front and back, and both arms. Three deep lacerations had damaged her external jugular vein, her carotid artery, and her larynx had been crushed. Her prognosis was dire. Sharon Smith arrived and waited until Diane got out of surgery. Diane miraculously was still alive, but just holding on. Sharon was by her bedside when Diane died, 70 minutes later. She believed that the love of her life held on long enough for her to see her one last time to say goodbye. The horrific attack and the death of Diane Whipple hit the news immediately. The public outcry was fierce. How could this happen? What kind of dogs were they, and why would they attack and kill for no apparent reason? What about the owners? What kind of responsible dog owners had dogs who could do this kind of damage? And why were such large and dangerous dogs living in a city apartment building anyway? Most had never even heard of the breed Presa Canario. Debates began about dangerous dogs and irresponsible dog owners. Diane Whipple's Friends, Family, and Students were shocked and grief-stricken. Over 600 people attended her memorial service held at St. Mary's Chapel. It was a somber occasion, so many were still in shock, and couldn't fathom the brutality of her death. Bain was put down immediately, the same night of the attack. Noel and Noller would not agree to allow Hera to be euthanized, so a dangerous dog hearing was scheduled to determine her fate. Noel wrote immediately to Paul Schneider. His letter read There is no way to ease into this. Bain is dead, as is one of our neighbors. Marjorie, while bruised, cut, and battered, is alive and more or less okay. I am certain you have seen the news of the killing on TV news or picked it up on one of the radio stations. One report indicated that a decision would probably be made to put down Hera. That will not happen and we will not permit it. The AD opined that Hera should be put down as she is very dangerous. What BS? They move on Hera, and they will have the fight of their lives on their hands. Neighbors be damned. Hera did nothing, and has not acted in a dangerous manner towards anyone. If they don't like living in the same building with her, they can move. Because of the injuries inflicted, there was no way to avoid going along with the decision to put Bane down. As for my feelings about presses, they are unchanged, Unquote. In his letter, Noel never mentions Diane Whipple's name, nor does he express remorse. His description of his wife's injuries seemed serious when, in reality, she'd only received a small injury to her thumb that the medical examiner said may have been caused by a dog bite, but he was inclined to think it may have been caused by the leash Bain was wearing that could have cut into her skin. In contrast to Diane Whipple's 77 serious injuries, Marjorie Noller had only three minor ones. Noelle and Noller would shock the public with their response to the death of Diane Whipple. Instead of behaving in a shocked and horrified and remorseful manner about the loss of life due to the actions of their pet, they went into attorney mode, first trying to do damage control for themselves and denying responsibility. When Abraham Lincoln said, he who represents himself has a fool for a client, he could have been talking about Robert Noel. The first thing he decided to do was to write an 18-page letter to D.A. Terrence Hallinan detailing his version of the attack, no matter that he wasn't there at the time it happened, but he was going to set the record straight. The following is his written account of the attack. Marjorie had taken Bain up to the roof to relieve himself, and when she returned to the sixth floor, she turned to dump the bag of excrement down the garbage chute. Bain was on his lead and in his harness. Diane Whipple was standing in front of her apartment door, just, quote, staring down the hall at Marjorie, unquote. She then went to lead the dog into their apartment. Diane continued to stand outside her door, quote, making no effort to move inside and close the door, unquote. This went on for a full minute. That's when Bane moved towards Diane, dragging Marjorie down the hall with him. Bane moved slowly down the hall, since he had a, quote, gimpy leg, and was being pulled back by Marjorie. Diane continued to stand still outside of her apartment. Bane jumped up. The dog at the time of the attack weighed 140 pounds and stood approximately five feet tall on his hind legs and placed his paws on the wall on either side of Diane Whipple's head. Marjorie, reaching Diane, used her free hand to push Whipple into her apartment, trying to protect her. Diane fell to the floor, and Marjorie got on top of Diane, telling her to stay down. Marjorie began backing Bane out of Diane Whipple's apartment by his harness. Interestingly, in this account, the words attack, bite, etc. have yet to be mentioned. But I digress. Back to their account. Diane then got to her knees and began crawling back out of her apartment, quote, rather than remaining in her apartment and closing the door, unquote. It was emphasized. As she crawled towards Marjorie and Bane, Marjorie once more threw herself on top of Diane to shield her from the dog. They still have not said that Bane had attacked Diane. So what was Marjorie shielding her from? This happened two or three times, according to Marjorie. Diane kept moving towards her as Marjorie tried to back Bane away and into her own apartment. Marjorie repeatedly told Diane to, quote, stop moving and I will protect you, unquote, but she would not listen. Bane began to bite as Diane crawled towards him and Marjorie. Then to double down on this crazy story, I just can't be objective anymore. Their letter states, Ms. Whipple forcibly struck Marjorie in the right eye. When Ms. Whipple struck Marjorie in the face, Bain moved forward and made contact with Ms. Whipple's neck and throat. The victim blaming continues, with Noel telling the DA to look into the possibility that Diane Whipple may have been wearing a type of perfume or a topical steroid that produced a pheromone that provoked Bain to attack. One thing the letter failed to say was that while Diane was being attacked and afterwards, Marjorie Noller never tried to call 911 and didn't even yell for help. The only cries of help came from Diane Whipple herself, Esther Berkmeyer would report. Marjorie Noller finally got the dogs into the apartment and locked them in, but never called an ambulance, never dialed 911, and never even called her husband. She also didn't try to administer any aid to the bleeding woman lying in the hallway. She did not emerge from her apartment again until officers arrived. Noel continued to run his mouth, so to speak, and spilled all kinds of information to the D.A. He gave details of other incidents of aggression by his dogs, always slanting them to portray other dogs or people as the instigators. Of the man bitten by his dog coming out of the elevator— Noel would say he'd caused it himself by, quote, slamming into Marjorie on his way out of the elevator. His dog was trying to protect her, he explained. Noel also offered up information to the DA about their connection to inmate Paul John Schneider and his dog breeding ring. He was so detailed, giving names and places, that DA Halinan was able to order a raid at the home of an Aryan Brotherhood affiliate, Russ Stanton. The raid yielded letters from Schneider, records on the purchases of the Presa Canarios, and call records connecting Noel and Knoller to Stanton. The district attorney's office initially considered Whipple's death a tragic accident. After hearing all Robert Noel had to say about it, they began considering filing homicide charges against him and Marjorie Knoller. Noelle and Knoller left their apartment, never to return. However, they decided to do a media tour, appearing on Good Morning America and Primetime Live. The more they talked, the more they made themselves pariahs. They both continued to deny responsibility for Diane Whipple's death. They even denied that they were the owners of the dogs, even though Marjorie had told officers the night of the attack that they belonged to her and had signed the ACC's release form to have Bane put down. On Good Morning America, they absolutely denied that the dogs had been bred or trained to attack or kill. The dozens of accounts of those who had come forward to say they'd witnessed their dogs' aggression were, quote, total fabrication. Noller insisted that Bane was not acting aggressively towards Diane in the hallway, but was merely interested in her. As she'd pushed Diane into her apartment, they had tripped which was how Diane ended up on the ground, according to Noller. She also said that Diane was probably somewhat frightened at that point. Sharon Smith would say that this was ludicrous. Diane was terrified of those dogs, Sharon said, almost as if she'd had a premonition. The level of fear she had towards the dogs was very unlike Diane, Sharon told investigators. When asked if she felt she bore any responsibility for the attack, Noller answered, not at all. "'Not even because she was unable to control her dogs?' she was asked. "'I wouldn't say that I was unable to control them,' she said. "'She then blamed Diane for the fatal mauling. "'Ms. Whipple had ample opportunity to move into her apartment,' she said. "'She was in her apartment. "'She could have just slammed the door shut. "'I would have.'" In another bizarre twist, To an already bizarre story, three days after Diane Whipple's death, Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller legally adopted Paul John Schneider. They explained that they did so because they, quote, loved him like a son and wanted to make sure that if anything happened to him in prison, they could sue. It was a way to protect him from the corrupt correction system, they explained. However, when his connection to the fatal dog mauling in Pacific Heights was discovered, and his cell was searched, dozens of letters and photos between Schneider, Noel, and Knoller were discovered, some pornographic. There were pictures of a nude Marjorie Knoller addressed to Schneider along with x-rated letters that proved her interest in the inmate was far from maternal. When asked about it, Marjorie would say, it's a tradition to write erotic letters to inmates. It helps them. Noel himself seemed to have a big man crush on his adopted son. These are some excerpts from another interview Noel gave. In it, he describes Schneider thusly. Paul has charisma. He's honest. Paul's an extremely bright guy. Paul is smarter than the average guy. Paul is kind of a righteous outlaw, right? Paul is bright. I would characterize Paul as an outlaw hero. He's very courteous and well-spoken in person and if he was wearing a designer suit, he wouldn't look bad at all. The guy is drop-dead gorgeous. As to the fact that Paul Schneider was considered one of the most violent inmates in California and a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, Noel said, If you ask me if Paul is a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, I can't say that he is or not. But I can tell you this, in a videotaped deposition, he did admit that he was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. A grand jury heard evidence to determine whether Noel and Noller would be charged in Diane Whipple's death. In some of the most memorable exchanges during their time on the stand, Noller, when pressed into admitting that her dogs were dangerous, said that any dog could be dangerous if they caused a puncture wound. Even a Chihuahua? Could a Chihuahua be as dangerous as her dogs? Prosecutor Jim Hammer asked. Yes, Noller replied. She believed a Chihuahua could be as dangerous as Hera. She also testified that before January 26, 2001, neither she nor her husband had ever lost control of their dogs. Dozens of witnesses would dispute this claim. Noller would claim that Hera had done nothing more than, quote, pull on Whipple's pants leg, unquote, but shredded pieces of fabric consistent with Diane Whipple's clothing was found in Hera's stool the night she was taken away. This was evidence, a dog behaviorist would testify, that she'd taken part in the attack. He further went on to say that dogs are taught a technique called ragging out to increase their aggression. Someone taught that dog to bite rags, he testified. Dogs who are taught to rag out will tear and shred at the clothing of a victim. Investigators found a book in the apartment of Noelle and Noller titled Man Stopper, Training a Canine Guardian. This technique is outlined in the book. On March twenty-seven, two thousand and one, the grand jury indicted Marjorie Noller on three counts: murder, involuntary manslaughter, and the ownership of a mischievous animal causing death. Robert Noel was indicted on the lesser two counts. On May twenty-ninth, they both pled not guilty. Bail was set at one million for Noel and two million for Noller. A change of venue was granted and the trial was moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles County. The couple would be tried together. Noelle, who was broke, was represented by a court-appointed attorney, Bruce Hotchkiss. Noller's parents paid to hire the flamboyant and dramatic defense attorney, Nedra Ruiz. Her antics in the courtroom included crying and crawling on all fours on the courtroom floor to illustrate how her client had risked her own life to try and save Diane Whipple. While their attorneys tried to argue that Noel and Noller had no idea that the dogs could be dangerous before January 26, 2001, over 30 witnesses took the stand to testify that they'd seen the dogs behave aggressively, attack other dogs, lunge at strangers, etc., while in the presence of their owners. Dr. Martin, the vet who had examined Bain and Hera and the Pressas before they left Hayfork, testified that he'd warned Noller in writing, about the dangerousness of the dogs. Also entered into evidence was the letter Noller had sent him in return, confirming receipt of his invoice, as well as his letter. Quotes from the book Manstopper, found on Noel's bedside table, were read in court. One of them read, Responsibility for a dog's behavior rests squarely on the shoulders of the dog's master. A responsible adult doesn't leave a loaded gun lying around the house. Another couple testified as to an incident when they'd encountered the dogs while walking their puppies in the neighborhood. They tried to allow their dogs to greet Bane, who was being walked on a leash. Noller pulled her dog away and sternly said, you'd better leash your dogs, he will kill your dogs. In a last-ditch effort, the defense tried to claim that Noel and Noller didn't legally own Bane and Hera, pointing the finger back at Paul Schneider and his dog-o'-war kennel operation. The prosecution presented city license applications for both dogs, filled out and signed by Noel, listing he and Noeller as their owners. The applications were dated January 3, 2001, just three weeks before the attack. In March 2002, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty on all counts. Noeller was the first person in California to be convicted of murder in a dog bawling case. But in June 2002, the public was shocked when Judge Warren threw out Noller's second-degree murder conviction because he quote could not say as a matter of law that Noller's conduct was such that she subjectively knew on January 26th that a human being was likely to die unquote. She was then sentenced to 4 years in prison for involuntary manslaughter and sent to Valley State Prison. Robert Noel was sentenced to the four-year maximum term he could receive for involuntary manslaughter and was later moved to a prison in Oregon to serve out his sentence. It was deemed unsafe for him to be incarcerated in the California correctional system due to his legal work representing guards and inmates. He was paroled after two and a half years and sent to Solano County to serve out his two-year parole at an undisclosed location. As a condition of parole, he was not allowed to contact Paul Schneider or Marjorie Knoller and was forbidden to own dogs. With credit for time served before and during her trial, Knoller served 16 months and was released on parole on January 1, 2004, to Ventura County. Her conditions of parole were the same as Noelle's. The term of her parole was three years. But in 2003... California Attorney General Bill Lockyer filed an appeal on the overturning of Noller's second-degree murder conviction. In May 2005, the Court of Appeal reinstated the jury's verdict of second-degree murder, arguing that the court had incorrectly stated the definition of implied malice as knowing there was a high probability of death. The legal definition was, quote, a conscious disregard of a risk of death or serious bodily injury. They further argued that, quote, the facts overwhelmingly supported the jury's finding that Noller subjectively appreciated the risk of death her dogs posed to people they encountered in and around the defendant's residence. And I might add, to even her own husband, who had nearly lost a finger to one of the dogs. In May 2007, the Supreme Court of California sent the case back to the Superior Court to consider restoring the second-degree murder conviction. Knoller, or any other defendant, it ruled, can be convicted of murder if they were found to have acted in a, quote, conscious disregard of the danger to human life. On September 22, 2008, the San Francisco Superior Court reinstated Marjorie Knoller's conviction for second-degree murder. She was sentenced to serve 15 years to life with credit for time served. She is currently serving out her sentence at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Robert Noel completed his parole in 2004 and currently lives in Fairfield, California. He was disbarred by the California State Bar in 2007. Paul Kornfed Schneider is serving three life sentences for crimes including the attempted murder of the defense attorney. He was transferred to a federal prison in Minnesota. At one time, he was considered a possible suspect in the Golden State Killer case but was cleared by DNA testing in 1997. Hera underwent a dangerous dog hearing and was deemed too dangerous for rehabilitation, and she was euthanized. Dale Breches continues to run the Dog-O-War operation under a new name. It is believed that he'd reached out to associates to expand the dog breeding operation internationally in Great Britain, North Africa, and South America. Two of Bain's offspring were placed with legitimate dog rescue organizations. One female was placed with a family in San Fernando Valley and lived out her life peacefully. The other dog's whereabouts are unknown, but investigators tracked at least one of the Presa Canarios to a Mexican drug cartel, and they believe that the dog may have been a descendant of Baines. Sharon Smith filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller, even though the state at that time only allowed legal heirs, surviving spouses, children, and parents to sue for wrongful death. She hoped that her lawsuit would help change that. In October 2002, she testified on behalf of a bill signed into law by Governor Gray Davis that gave same sex partners the right to sue for wrongful death. Sharon set up the Diane Alexis Whipple Foundation, an organization devoted to women's lacrosse, cancer research, and abused children, soon after Diane's death. She planned to donate any money received from the lawsuit to the Foundation. (music) Last thoughts about this case. While the Presa Canario breed is known for being a lethal weapon from the beginning of its history, I also feel that that can be true for any animal with the size, power, and strength that they possess. We also know that large dogs have been bred and trained for a variety of jobs where aggression is prized. Bulldogs were bred for the sport of bull baiting, German shepherds are trained as police dogs to take down criminals, etc., but they can also be wonderful family pets. Presses may have been bred for a job that made them dangerous in the past, but if the dogs had been well trained by a knowledgeable and responsible owner, Bain and Hera may possibly still have made great pets. We know that at least one of Bane's puppies was, even after her unstable early life experiences. And speaking of unstable, it was discovered that Bane was not a purebred pressa Canario. He was mixed with at least four different dog breeds. The breeder either falsely represented this or did not know, but either way, Paul Schneider paid thousands of dollars for a mutt. A dog expert later said that because it was unknown what breeds Bane was a mixture of, it made it much more difficult to predict his temperament. On top of breeding or temperament concerns, the owners failed to provide their dogs proper socialization or training to enable them to successfully and peacefully navigate the situation they were placed into. It's not to say that large dogs should not be subjected to apartment living, but they still need plenty of exercise as well as training to ensure that they are well behaved around so many strangers and stressful situations traffic, noise, crowds, etc. When a dog doesn't perceive their owner or owners to be in charge, they place themselves in that role. They become the rulers of the home. They will create their own stability if it is not provided for them. The home and its surroundings become their domain to protect and reign over. Bain and Hera did just this. But because they lived in an apartment building, the building and everything in and surrounding it became their kingdom. There were reports from Robert Noel's colleagues that his apartment used to be charming and well-kept. Marjorie had taken special care to have it nicely decorated, and it was always tidy. After the dogs came, the house was a mess. Objects and furniture destroyed, urine and feces stains throughout the house. The whole place felt and smelled like a kennel, one witness reported. The dogs had taken over. They then moved out into the building and asserted their authority there as well. The hallway of the sixth floor, where they roamed freely at times, the elevator, the lobby of the building, and the steps and sidewalk in front of it were all places the witnesses reported that the dogs behaved aggressively. But it's still curious as to why they perpetrated a deadly attack on Diane Whipple that day. It could have just been the inevitable end to what had been building up over months, and that Diane was just the unlucky one at the wrong place and at the wrong time. It could have been simply a perfect storm of conditions. The dogs becoming increasingly aggressive, the prior attacks on Diane Whipple when she was bitten by one of them, perhaps marking her as prey in their minds, Marjorie Noller being on her own with two large dogs that she couldn't control, etc. Or was there something else? I came across another account of the attack on Diane Whipple. This account was allegedly told to Paul Schneider's sister, Tammy, by Marjorie Noller herself. Noller called her the night of the attack. Tammy was quoted as saying in a 2002 article in Rolling Stone magazine. She told Tammy that, quote, she and her neighbor got into it, unquote. They had an argument before anything happened with those dogs, Tammy said. Marjorie asked Diane Whipple to shut her door so she could take her dogs out into the hall, and that the lady, Diane, was like, quote, No, I'm not shutting my door now. Fuck you. Noller denied that this exchange ever happened. But just to speculate, what if Diane Whipple was sick and tired of being scared of the dogs, having to alter her habits and walk on eggshells because her inconsiderate neighbors refused to, quote, do something about those dogs, as she'd said to Sharon Smith not long before her death? If she was trying to get into her apartment, holding grocery bags, etc., and Marjorie Knoller told her to hurry up and get inside her apartment and shut her door so she could bring her dogs into the hall. Maybe she felt Marjorie was bossing her around, and she decided enough was enough and stood up to her. Maybe she felt Marjorie could wait or just go jump in a lake. Perhaps at that time, Marjorie became angry at Diane's attitude, and her body language, her energy, etc., may have triggered the dogs that something was about to go down, and they reacted. Or perhaps, and this is just pure speculation and terrible to even consider, a command was issued and the dogs obeyed. Maybe no one expected the dogs to actually kill someone, and it got out of hand, and it was too late to take it back. I sure hope this is not true, and there's no evidence that it is, just to state that on record. But there was one other detail that I came across, and you can make of it what you will maybe it means nothing, but I found it interesting. Marjorie Noller said that she had come back from taking Bain to the roof of the building to relieve himself before the attack happened. The detail she gave to the police officers was that she was at the garbage chute throwing away Bain's waste bag. Not to be gross, but this would imply that he took a poop just before the attack. But in Tammy's account, Marjorie said she told Diane to close her door because she was trying to take her dogs, plural, out into the hall. Why was she taking them out if she had just supposedly returned from walking Bane on the roof? And one last detail the officers who came to remove Bane from the apartment after he had attacked Diane Whipple reported that Bane was found inside and had, quote, defecated all over the floor, unquote. Would a dog defecate so much if he had just relieved himself less than an hour earlier? It points to Marjorie Noller's original account to police as being suspect. Perhaps she had not already taken Bain out and was returning when he saw Diane and charged at her, but was trying to leave to take one or both dogs out when she saw Diane opening her apartment door. Then Tammy's account seems more in line. But what that means, if anything... I will leave for you to decide. Thanks once again for listening to today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, and I'll be back on August 6th with a whole new series. If you want to get a sneak peek into the next topic, become a Patreon member. You'll get early release, ad-free episodes when available, bonus content, perks, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime for details. It's the end of the month, so it's time for Patreon shout-outs for those who have pledged at the highest level, $10 or above. Thank you so much for going above and beyond. Our newest pure metal head-level patrons are Aaron Frisbee, Kimberly Jex, Lindsay Wiggins, and Krista Colvin. And a very, very special thank you to Dominique Walker, who went above and beyond the above and beyond. Did that make sense? Dominique gave us our very first ever $20 per month pledge, and we'll be receiving a very special prize pack. Thank you, Dominique. And finally, the Patreon supporter who wins this month's special prize pack, picked randomly, of course, is Stephen Potts. Congratulations, Stephen. You'll be receiving a signed copy of the graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, along with my undying gratitude for being a Patreon supporter. Thanks again to all of you. You rock. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.